Good evening. I'm Walter Armbrust. I'm here to introduce tonight's speaker, who is Andrew Arson from University of Cambridge. We know him as our external examiner for the MPhil Modern Middle Eastern Studies, but fortunately he does more interesting things than that. He's a, a senior university lecturer in Modern Middle Eastern History and the Faculty of History at Cambridge and a fellow of St. John's College. He's here. The, the lecture he's giving here tonight it will be related to his second book, which is Lebanon, A Country in Fragments, which was uh, published just last year by Hearst. And this offers a survey of Lebanese politics and society in the years since 2005, which is pretty contemporary for a historian. He's currently at work on a history of the lands that became Lebanon for the publication with Cambridge University Press in 2020, just in time for the REF, the Research Excellence Framework. I should also mention his first book, which was Interlopers of Empire, the Lebanese Diaspora and Colonial French West Africa, published by Oxford University Press in 2014, which was the joint winner of the Gladstone Prize given by the Royal Historical Society for a first book on non-Western history in 2015, which is a huge honor. The, the talk that he's giving tonight is titled Lebanon and the 21st Century, Populism, Neoliberalism, and Their Discontents. You've all had access to the um, abstract on the website um, I'll, I'll quote just one line from it. Many now think of Lebanon as a bundle of exceptions rather than a canary in the global coal mine. In this talk, Andrew is going to argue that this is precisely what Lebanon is, an image of the long-term ravages wrought on the body politic by the bilious discourses of populism with its coarseness and sharp Schmidtian distinctions between friends and enemies. And, and, and then he goes on for a bit longer in the same vein. I had ju I just finished writing a book in which I, I argued that Egypt was in the vanguard of global politics, and now it seems that Lebanon is as well. So I'm really eager to hear how this is so. So give a warm welcome to Professor Andrew Arson. Thank you very much, Walter, for that really warm welcome and thank you all for, for turning out tonight. I know Friday night's a tough sell but uh, thank you. I'm not sure that being in the vanguard of global politics is necessarily a, a good thing. So what I want to do is just take a couple of examples from the book um, from Lebanon, uh, A Country in Fragments and then a few observations on what has gone on since I finished that book on current Lebanese politics to try to get us to think about politics and the political in, in contemporary Lebanon in not quite so wordy or theoretical vein as the abstract. But at the same time, as Walter was hinting at, I want to try and take these Lebanese examples and extrapolate from them and try to use them to think about the 21st uh, century world in which we live. A world that it's Peter claimed uh, is defined by two antagonistic forces, forces in tension, in causal relationship but also in tension, uh, populism and neoliberalism. So the argument that I want to make is really quite simple. In Lebanon, since 2005, if not earlier, populism and neoliberalism are not the opposing forces that we're often told we are when we're reading about uh, the West or, or Latin America or other parts of the world. Instead, they're very much mutually constitutive. They work together, hand in glove, helping to shape political discourse and practice, what's said and what's done and what happens to society, and to undergird a particular political structure, a, a particular political dispensation, a uh, political system. And this, I think, goes against some of what we've been told in recent years when populism has been presented, both in scholarly discourse and in commentary, as the natural, almost natural, inevitable response to years or decades of neoliberal dominance, of ne neoliberal policies shaping political economy. So in this account, Donald Trump, as much as Hugo Chavez or Nicolas Maduro, Viktor Orban in Hungary, as much as Almo in Mexico, 
Podemos in Spain or Syriza in Greece, or as much as UKIP, owe something to the turn against neoliberalism, the pushback against neoliberal policies, and the discontent that they produce. So the popularity of figures and parties such as these, movements such as these, so the common argument goes, is down not just to a sense of uh, disenfranchisement, a sense that politics is very much a game run by and for elites and rigged in their favour, but also uh, a deep-seated sense of disillusion with neoliberal policies. So policies whose vaunted capacity to create growth in this reading has created only resentment for many. So in this account, the neoliberal consensus that reigned for so long across large swathes of the globe of the world, and the opposition to these policies that broke to the surface after the financial after the crisis of 2008 and the subsequent years, helps to explain the sudden and troubling turn towards populism. So this is very much a causal account, uh, one that hinges on 2008 and its effects, its ripple effects through the world, but also on what came before. Without New Labour, there'd be no Brexit. Without Clinton or Bush or Obama there'd be no Trump. Without the neoliberal policies of the EU, its particular conception of the citizen as consumer, as economic subject, there'd be no Podemos or no Fidesz, or at least not the Fidesz, Fidesz's power, no Law and Justice Party in Poland. But the problem here I want to suggest by looking at Lebanon and looking at this through the prism of Lebanon isn't just one of uh, causation, isn't just one of what these accounts include and what they leave out. It's also, as others have pointed out, a problem of definition. If Trump and Orban and Jeremy Corbyn Maduro, Jair Bolsonaro and Almo, Erdogan and Sisi are all populists. That surely begs the question, what is populism and how useful is the term? And it also begs a corollary question, a related question, which is what is neoliberalism? If all of this is somehow a pushback, a response against neoliberalism, what is this force, this spectral force running through the world? Is it simply a synonym for free market economics, for policies that favour, simply put, the private sector over the public and private interests over public goods? Is it simply a means of diagnosing what's wrong with the current uh, state of things? From housing shortages to failing transport networks, a convenient full guy, full system, full structure. Is it just a synonym, in other words, for bad economics and bad politics? For policies that don't work for the many because, to quote a phrase, they're designed to work only for the few. As I've said, populism and neoliberalism, both clear, have become catch-all terms free-floating signifiers. And in doing so, I think, they've lost analytical clarity uh, and purchase. And looking at Lebanon, I hope, can help us to gain back some of that clarity. So Lebanon, as I've argued elsewhere in the book and in other shorter pieces, is, I think, a good place to think from. It's not a big place. Um, it barely exceeds uh, 10,000 square kilometres. And that's this <coughs> rhetoric. It's 10,452 square kilometres. not endorsing that phrase. Uh, and until quite recently, its population was hardly bigger than that of New Zealand. It's been swollen, of course, in the years since 2011 by a very large uh, influx of Syrian refugees. But precisely for that reason, precisely because of its small size, because it is a small state, it allows us to see things that we might miss elsewhere, to detect particular patterns in political practice and political discourse. It is, to use uh, an unkind phrase, a sort of petri dish for observations in politics. So in the first part of the talk, I want to try and look at the ways in which Lebanese politics fits and defines populist pattern, a particular pattern of populist politics, before moving on in the second part to think about a couple of cases of what scholars have called actually existing neoliberalism in Lebanon. So the ways in which neoliberalism policies play themselves out, are engineered, are designed, rather than the highfalutin theory of neoliberalism. And to try and think about the relationship between these political economic policies and the populist claims 
and actions of the country's politicians to try and tease out what the relationship is there between the two. A cosy, mutually constitutive relationship rather than one intention, rather than one that is antagonistic. I can't come to St Anthony's without mentioning Albert Harani or Roger Owen. Harani, in his famous uh, essay on the ideologies of the mountain and the coast, written just at the outbreak of the Lebanese Civil War and published in a very short, very slim, but still incredibly pertinent, poignant volume uh, edited by Roger Owen. Harani, in this essay, defined Lebanon's politics, and in particular the leadership style of its Christian politicians, those who headed up the Lebanese front uh, at the outset of the Lebanese Civil War, as populist. It's just a passing phrase, but... He uses the label, which was then in vogue with people like Ernest Gellner and, and others in the late 60s and early 70s. And I think actually as a bracket, and I hadn't thought of this before, he's perhaps using it in the sense that Gellner and others were using it to describe a form of politics based partly on the mobilisation of, of peasants, on the mobilisation of an agrarian electorate, a traditional electorate by, by leaders. But I think we can do something else with Harani's definition. Uh, if, as Jan Werner uh, Müller puts it in his uh, beautifully lucid and pithy book on populism, we take that term, we take populism, to mean the claim to represent all of the people, all of people within a polity, to speak on all of their behalf, and also to involve, by definition, a clientelist relationship with one's own constituency, and to transform, to gerrymander that constituency into the people, to treat them as the people as a whole. So taking very much apart that part that is your clientele, and abstracting it into the whole. But the defining political style of the early decades of independence, the late 40s, 50s and 60s and 70s, the early 70s, was one that I think remained very deeply hierarchical. If one that was alternately kind of bourgeois and aristocratic. So as Michael uh, Gilsenen has shown, this was still in some ways the world of the Bekawet, of leaders who owed their position to the economic and administrative power that they held over particular regions and places, of the hinterlands and the marches, of Lebanon, to use Michael's phrase. Men who defined themselves as the sole representatives of those places, of potent, powerful men who exerted full influence, full power over these hinterlands. But this was a relationship, and this is clear in, in Gilsenan's account, in Michael's account, that was always full of ambivalence and of uh, tension. The big, the Zayim, regarded himself, the leader, regarded himself not just as a social superior, but also as defined in opposition to his people, his following he was a modern, besuited, sophisticated, urbane, cosmopolitan man of the city. A man of Beirut with clean fingernails and nice uh, ties and suits. and Ruling over a rural, in his eyes, a rural and backward mess. Mass. Mess too, probably, in his reading. He was a modern leader for a traditional place and a traditional uh, people. I think this was very much the world, not just of the Bekawet of, of Haggad, that Gilsenan worked uh, with and on, but also of other leaders across all Lebanon's regions and across all Lebanon's confessions. Sabi Ahmedi, Gamil Bek al-Asad, Slimif Ranjiyeh, Gamal Jumblat, although he's an interesting exception in some ways, and Saib Salam. So a model that also, I think, works as much for the city as for the country and the mountain. And the aristocratic style in politics, calling the aristocratic style in politics, manifested itself not just in particular forms of hierarchy, particular kinds of power relations, but also in a certain grandeur, a certain way of carrying oneself. So if you think of Gemil Shamon and all those images that circulate across the internet, those images of the 50s and 60s of Shamon kind of with the Jordanian or Saudi monarchy, with the Iranian monarchy, very much or in hunting dress, very much an aristocrat or member of very much of the, you know, somebody who might have fitted seamlessly in within, with the monarchies of the Middle East, but also with the high bourgeoisie and aristocracy of, of Europe. So an aristocratic style of uh, politics on the one hand, an intention with this, what we might call a more petty bourgeois mode of uh, leadership, without being unkind, unassuming, technocratic, grey, supposedly competent, 
humdrum, legalistic and loyally, if sometimes also militaristic. So the leadership of Fouad Shab, Henri Halo, Lies Sarkis. But yet, here too, there was never any sense that these were in any meaningful sense men of the people, men who defined themselves as men of the people. With their careful French, their polished shoes, they were in many ways anything but that. But I think that the civil war that broke out in 75 and its aftermath, uh, the years of the Syrian occupation from 1990 uh, to 2005, changed all of that, bringing to the fore, uh, as many others have argued, a host of new political figures, some more enduring than others, better able to build up a base, better able to survive, to live on, and a new mode of political uh, leadership. I think this is most apparent in the charismatic appeal and the political language of three figures that aren't often uh, considered together. So one is uh, General, General Michel Ron, Lebanon's current president, uh, and the founder and leader of the Free Patriotic Movement. The other is Samir Jaja, the leader of the Lebanese forces. And the third is Sayyid Hassan Nasallah, the uh, Secretary-General of Hezbollah. And I think comparison is quite, I hope, a telling one. So Michel Ron and Samir Jaja are often considered, at best, frenemies. Brutal foes in the last years of the war when the forces at their command confronted each other, in parts of uh, Lebanon, and whose partisans after the war, after 1990 and Da'if and the post-war dispensation, shared many of the same disappointments, many of the same aspirations to restore the Christians' rights and rightful representation, shared many of the same slogans, uh, freedom and independence and sovereignty, but at the same time looked on each other with deep wariness. I think this is maybe here to go back to that little bit of the abstract, that one does see this kind of schmidtiot tension between friend and enemy, this drive for elimination of the other, this sense of politics very much as a zero-sum game. And so despite their brief uh, telegenic reconciliation in 2016, despite that brief reconciliation, kind of the, the, the chummy, slightly chilling press conference, and then the kind of attempts to pave a way towards partnership in the parliamentary elections um, that were eventually held in, in 2018, they have since returned to an older pattern of competition uh, and tension. So they don't necessarily make for natural comparisons. Masallah, meanwhile, Sayyid Hassan, is often considered uh, sui generis, as is Hezbollah, the movement that he heads up, as the cottage industry of books on Hezbollah demonstrates. So I think kind of more than folded into broader discussions of Lebanese politics, they're often, if considered comparatively, considered alongside other political Islamic, Islamic movements, Islamist movements elsewhere. But I think there is something to be gained in looking at these three figures, these three preeminent, dominant figures of Lebanese politics together. So I think all three are defined uh, in the eyes of their partisans uh, by an uncommon combination of attributes. So their humble origins, origins that, origins that they're not undisposed to harp on, their refusal to play the game of politics as it's usually played. So the partisans, the followers of all three, will pick up on the ways in which they very consciously and very conspicuously dissent from the game, the rituals of Lebanese politics, the ceremonials of Lebanese politics. They don't go to weddings. They don't go to funerals, condolences. They don't always open their salons in the ways that other leaders, like Walid Jumblat, for instance, do. So they're not zaims in the typical sense. They're accepted zaims as leaders, as arma, as heads of political movements, as dominant figures, but there's people who behave in unconventional, atypical ways. But also, at the same time, their unusual intelligence, their capacity, their, their vision and foresight. So it's not for nothing that Jaja, at least, is called Al-Hakim, the wise one, the doctor. So you do see as well in their reminiscences and in those of their followers and partisans and those around them, you know, a stress on their capacity for foresight and for vision and their, particular, their particularly you know, intellectual predispositions. So Jaja, kind of in solitary isolation, 
in the 1990s, reading Dao de Chardin, you know, re- reading kind of Jesuit theology or philosophy. Michel Aron kind of diagnosing the way that the Middle East would go very early on and kind of seeing this awful kind of sectarian confrontation between Sunni and Shia and the threat that this would pose, the existential threat that would pose to the region's Christians. So figures gifted with unusual vision as well as natural uh, leadership. A leadership born of being men of the people, who have come from the people, who are very much salt of the earth, coming from the loam of uh, the people. So by definition, they regard themselves as anti-elite, and they're regarded by their followers as anti-elite. So this is a style of leadership then that is deeply populist, I think, in the most conventional sense. And they do, in that conventional sense, define themselves in opposition to elites that they regard as having taken over, monopolised Lebanon's economy, Lebanon's state, Lebanon's society, unfairly, unrightly. So just in the last couple of days, a controversy has broken out where, with a Hezbollah MP, bringing claims of, kind of financial malfeasance in the public accounts over a long period of years, stretching back to the 1990s, but focusing in particular... Uh, his attention focusing in particular on 2004 and 2005. And many commentators, perhaps not without reason, arguing that he was very much attempting to single out Fouad Senora, Prime Minister at the time, or Finance Minister at the time, uh, by implication, Hariri, father and son. So very much a style of politics which defines itself against what is regarded as kind of the corrupt, unfair, inequitable monopolisation of power and financial and political. But I think more broadly we can see a pattern of kind of populist discourse uh, in the years after 2005. A pattern of populist claims that have defined and shaped Lebanon's politics in these years. Since the assassination of Rafi al-Hariri in 2005 and the withdrawal of Syrian forces. The two main blocs that have that faced off uh, from 2005 at least till 2018 have to some extent kind of recomposed themselves uh, in the last couple of years. March the 14th and March the 8th. Both claim to be the sole legitimate representatives of the Lebanese people. All of them. They went to great pains to validate, to legitimate these claims, engineering unwieldy cross-confessional coalitions. Made a great point of kind of being representative of all Lebanon's communities, all Lebanon's, a cross-section of Lebanese society. And by implication of castigating the other side, of taking into account the other side as illegitimate and holding on to power in illegitimate, illegal, unfair, undemocratic ways. Here politics was not, or at least not overtly, about confessionalism or confessional antagonism and interests and balances and counterbalances, the way that Lebanese politics is conventionally written about. It's very much about claims to representativeness uh, cutting across the Lebanese body politic, across confessional lines. And as I've already kind of suggested, there was something more here, I think, than ordinary claims of the democratic majority. Both sides insisted that irrespective of shifting political arithmetic, they held the title, irrespective of whoever was in power at any one time, they held the title to act on behalf of the entirety of the Lebanese people. So March the 8th, arguing that March the 14th was uh, illegitimate because of the way in which it had monopolised financial and political power, but also because of its dealings with the international community, its insistence on an international tribunal to investigate and bring charges in the assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri and others. March the 14th, insisting that March the 8th was illegitimate because of the way in which it held uh, the cabinet to ransom and also uh, attempted to exert, attempted to undermine the state's monopoly of violence by keeping its own weapons and refusing to engage in discussion of those weapons. This claim to act on behalf of the entirety of the Lebanese people, irrespective of who actually holds the, the numerical balance, is apparent in the formation, the negotiations that went into the formation and the evolution of every cabinet since 2005. Not least Saad al-Khariri's third government, might be third time lucky, whose formation was announced early this year, a few weeks ago. These negotiations are very much defined by the politics of the veto. So in the latest round of negotiations that went on for 10, 11 months, the Free Patriotic Movement, 
the movement founded by Michel Aron and now led by his son-in-law, Gibran Basile, uh, the foreign minister, insisted on a share of 11 ministers in a cabinet of 30. So a third plus one of the seats in cabinet, effectively giving it power over the rest of the cabinet, giving it leverage to pass or bring down any act of legislation. So this demand rested in large part on two related, very much interrelated claims. So firstly, the claim to be the sole legitimate representative of the Christians within the polity. So the leading party amongst Christians, and therefore the party best equipped and best entitled to represent Christians. So in the constitutionist language that defines the FPM's discourse, kind of this insistence on citing the constitution, on citing legality, its appeal to the founding principles of Lebanese uh, politics. The demand for 11 seats in a cabinet of 30 represented not self-interest, not an attempt to impose oneself on others, not politicking, as, the, as its critics contended, but the recognition of the need for coexistence and for fair representation of all Lebanon's communities. So in pushing for 11 seats, all they were doing was really upholding the spirit and the letter of the Lebanese constitution. They were, in effect, the defenders of the constitution, upholding the integrity of the rule of law and of the Lebanese state. And I think here, kind of very much fitting into the populist pattern that Müller identifies, the ways in which populist leaders, if you look at Orban in Hungary and others, will work within the lines of the constitution even as they are revising or interpreting the spirit and the letter of that constitution working within the rule of law so long as they are making the laws or holding the power to interpret them. And secondly, the claim to 11 seats in a cabinet of 30 to hold the casting vote rested on the claim to be the movement of the president and hence to be helping to revive a tradition of strong executive authority that had been lost in the years since the war and to realise the programme that Michel Aron, as president, had promised and hoped to achieve, bring about a reform of the Republic, bringing about an end to the long-standing malfeasance, long-standing maladministration, long-standing corruption that had exemplified, that had characterised Lebanese politics in the years since 1990, but much further back. So, in short, kind of the FPM, the Free Patriotic Movement, promising a, a kind of revolution in politics, a revolution in state, the ways in which the state worked. And to, in order to be able to do that, needing that strong executive authority to really push through its legislative programme of kind of its programme of cleansing the Lebanese politic. So what appeared to critics to be a simple power grab was presented by advocates as a question of principle, a defence in particular of Christians' political rights, and a defence in general of the principles underwriting the Lebanese policy and preserving its future in the face of existential threats from without. And these claims to legitimacy and these claims to be upholding norms of Lebanese politics are characteristic of cabinet politics since 2005. So if you cast your mind back to the resignation in 2006, in late 2006, of the Hezbollah and Amal and FPM ministers within the Lebanese cabinet, denouncing Fouad Senora as illegitimate. And the same in 2011, when Saad al-Hadidi was in Washington, in the White House, being received, being hosted by Barack Obama, a great kind of coup de théâtre. But I think in the last couple of months, we see them being taken to their populist kind of extreme, these claims to legitimacy. But these questions of, of cabinet seats and of ministerial portfolios, of who's going to get what seat, what portfolio, what ministry, labour, energy, telecommunications finance, also cuts to the core of the question of neoliberalism and the ways in which actually existing neoliberalism has played out in the years since 2005 in Lebanon. And I think it's fair to say that neoliberalism is usually seen as part of the political legacy of Rafi al-Khariri and those who worked around him, with him. I think this isn't without a reason. 
So, as those of you who've read Hannes Baumann's work and others, the work of others uh, on the reconstruction of Beirut and also on kind of basic macroeconomic policy in Lebanon in the years since 1990, well, I can see why kind of the leading role that a set of internationally educated, internationally trained economists and bankers working with Hadidi or around Hadidi in government, but also in kind of quasi-non-governmental organisations and in private corporations, took in kind of shaping Lebanon's urban spaces and Lebanon's kind of uh, political economy. This association is not kind of entirely uh, unfounded. So if Hadidi, the father, if Rafiq Hadidi, is associated with the reconstruction of Beirut, the controversial reconstruction of central Beirut through the 1990s, then the son is associated, at least in part, with structural adjustment of the public sector and of the sovereign debt. So kind of very much now as a figurehead of the cabinet, as the prime minister of the cabinet, having to engage in the very thorny, difficult potentially impossible task of reforming Lebanon's public finances in response to the pressures exerted by the international community, particularly by the AMF and by international lenders, France, the United States, Saudi Arabia, the UK. So I was just reading this morning about kind of the, some of the pressures being exerted by France in particular and by the AMF to reform the public finances and the public sector, to bring, bring sovereign debt as a share of GDP down to 8 or 7% from 11% as it stands now. So Hadidi, father and son, in this image share a commitment to an extroverted, globalist vision of Lebanon. A vision in which growth is very much contingent on foreign direct investment and on engineering uh, Lebanon's institutions, state institutions uh, and private sector to create a climate and environment favourable to foreign direct investment. And also on working to stimulate growth-creating sectors as they see them. So in particular, financial services, property and uh, real estate, commercial and residential and tourism. But I think this focus on Hadiris and those around them fails to capture how deeply uh, Lebanese politics across the spectrum is permeated by the ideology uh, and practice of neoliberalism. So in some carp that Hadiri father and son have unfairly appropriated the common interests of all, they're not necessarily calling for reform uh, of the system, I think, but for a different uh, distribution of the spoils. They want to be at the front of the queue, not at the back as they believe they have been. So this is a complaint that you hear often kind of when you're talking to followers of the Lebanese forces as well as followers of the Free Patriotic Movement and of Michel on this idea that for much of the 1990s and uh, early 2000s, Christians were consciously uh, discriminated against. You know, the, the customs and excises, the tax man came after Christians, came asking Christians for tax bills, came looking into Christians' companies' accounts and left Muslims very much to their own affairs. There's a very crude confessional logic there at play. But in making these complaints, I think these partisans and, and those who lead them, I think, are not necessarily asking for a complete overhaul of the system, a change to the way in which political economy works, but simply for, as I said, a more even distribution of the spoils, or one in which they take the upper hand. And I think the way that neoliberal policies play themselves out across Lebanon's uh, political spectrum is apparent in particular, when you look at electricity, I mean, it's apparent elsewhere, but just to look at electricity briefly. So in 2010, Gibran Basile, then Minister of Energy, announced a new electricity plan for Lebanon to reform Lebanon's infamously deficient electricity supplies. And he promised or foresaw close to $5 billion of investment in revamping energy supply. And the emphasis here was very much not on boosting, not just on boosting supply, on boosting production of electricity, but also on reforming uh, distribution. So new power stations would be built, existing plants would be refurbished, brought into the 21st century to boost capacity. The national grid, the incomplete bits of the national grid, would be completed, particularly in peripheral uh, areas in the Bakar, for instance, but not just there. But alongside this, uh, private companies would be entrusted with distribution. Distribution of electricity would now no longer be in the hands of Electricité du Liban, Carabao Lubnan, the state electricity company, but would be tendered out to private uh, companies. There's a story there. 
I'll leave that to one side. These private companies would oversee the supply network, they would install smart meters, they would collect bills, they would look out for evasion. So this was very much public-private initiative, introducing a layer of inter- intermediation between the consumer and state utility company, between the point of production and the point of use. Transforming a public good into one that was held in private hands and regulated, at least in theory, by market forces. But this wasn't simply, and this point is obvious but crucial, this wasn't simply a withdrawal of the state. It wasn't simply a clean break, the state kind of leaving the room and leaving private enterprise to do its thing. Rather, this was very much a move that required further and intensive state intervention and uh, investment that required economic engineering at the hands of the state. Not least, it foresaw $165 million of state investment in corporate restructuring of Electricité du Liban, of EDL, largely in redundancy payments to workers who would be uh, disposed with, in order to increase efficiency to make the state utility company more attractive to the corporate investors and corporate purchasers, the Basile hoped would eventually take it off the state's books. In effect, this was a plan for privatisation over the medium term. But there was also something else here, which was a neoliberal conception of the individual citizen as an economic subject, whose right to enjoy the fruits of competition were counterbalanced, perhaps outweighed, by his duties as a consumer. To consume responsibly, to pay a market rate, no longer propped up by subsidies. And in fact, that's one of the things now that is kind of being mooted in this attempt to shore up the public finances and to please uh, foreign investors, foreign lenders, is to hike up the price of electricity, uh, to take away some of the subsidies, so to pass on the cost of lending to Lebanon's citizenry. So if the FBM is neoliberal, then so too in some ways is Hezbollah. So we have the tendency to think of it very much as hostile to the neoliberal consensus. It's stepping into the breach uh, when market forces let down uh, the poorest of its constituency, providing welfare, education, hospitals, primary health care, etc. In line with other Islamist movements across uh, the Middle East and other parts of the, the world. And there is some evidence of this, such as past opposition to VAT hikes, the introduction of VAT and, and hikes, increases in VAT. But as scholars like Mona Fawaz and Joseph Darid have uh, persuasively argued, this disguises a closer alignment with a prevailing consensus than might first be apparent. So Fawaz has shown, and here I'm very much drawing on her work, which is beautiful, it's exemplary. This was particularly evident in the aftermath of the 2006 war, when Hezbollah took in hand uh, the reconstruction of southern Beirut through an arm's length, what we'd call here an, arm, an ALMO, an arm's length kind of organisation called Al Ba'ad, the Promise. So on the face of it, this seems paradigmatic of that kind of outreach of social, communitarian social welfare programmes. But the consultation process and the subsequent redevelopment work, the reconstruction work, very much privileged the model of urban life in which property freeholders and owner-occupiers were given greater importance than tenants. In other words, a system that privileged ownership over renting. The public consultations held in Khadr Tahrik and other neighbourhoods of uh, Beirut very much gave the forum over to building owners rather than to tenants. The model of neighbourhood reconstruction that came to pass heavily favoured the interests of owners rather than tenants. It favoured private internal amenities, lifts in buildings, car parks under buildings, etc., effectively creating defendable spaces, uh, spaces that were isolated from their surroundings, private dwellings that were enclosed, self-enclosed, allowing the isolation of the individual uh, consumer. They accommodated the needs of private resident consumers who each had their own car, each needed their own parking space. In other words, the investment then go into public amenities, public spaces, into putting down sidewalks, into putting down benches, creating parks, public squares, as Hezbollah and Amal have done since the 1990s in the municipalities that they have uh, administered. 
the emphasis at this stage was very much on creating a sympathetic environment for private residency. And part of this was also kind of simplifying, abstracting uh, legal titles, creating individual private titles where previously only squatters' rights or inherited title or shared family ownership had prevailed. So very much turning communal spaces and communal tenancy and communal rights and claims into liquid assets, commodities, flats as commodities within a property market held, owned by private individuals who now held singly the title of ownership. This was all very much premised on the particular relationship between law and economics, between the individual consumer and the market, between, dwelling, between the dwelling and the city, that isn't really a million miles away from the housing reform successor governments in this country, from what the Conservatives did in the 1980s and 1990s, or what uh, New Labour and successive governments have tried to do, privileging owner-occupancy, private tenancy, creating defensible spaces, reforming spaces that were previously more sympathetic to collective forms of life, to spaces which privileged the isolated nuclear family unit as a unit of consumption and of ownership. So in other words, there was no real departure from the consensus, at least in this particular case, on Hezbollah's part. So for all the populist rhetoric of defending the interests of the people against the elites, a rhetoric that takes a particular sectarian edge in Lebanon, this turned against one or another community, depending on who's speaking, who's making the claim. Populism and neoliberalism work very much hand in hand in Lebanon. What political leaders take with one hand, they give back with the other. Taking out the hands of society, or they then redistribute within the community. So this particular mode of government helps to sustain Lebanon's confessional politics and its post-war order. But I think it is also paradigmatic of the ways in which democratic politics has been turned inside out the world over uh, in recent years. As partisans have redefined themselves as the people, claiming for themselves and only themselves goods once held uh, in common. So perhaps Lebanon isn't so exceptional after all. Perhaps its politics can tell us something about the world at large. Thank you.